I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. After all this, God tested Abraham. God said, Abraham. And Abraham answered, Yes, here I am. I'm listening. Located along the water in New London, Connecticut, the United States Coast Guard Academy is quite at home in the landscape that surrounds. Stately buildings meet well-manicured lawns, and as one would expect from a maritime military academy, the river below those stately buildings and well-manicured lawns frames the campus and grounds above most beautifully. The waterfront of the academy is home to a number of piers, small boats, and a sailing center. But all of these things are often dwarfed by the nearly 300-foot, 295-foot to be exact, Bark Eagle, the literal flagship of the U.S. Coast Guard that serves as a sail training vessel for the Academy's cadets and remains to this day the only active duty sailing vessel in America's military. Though one might think that such a ship, such an important ship, has long been in the possession of our country, it might surprise you to know that the Eagle is actually a relatively recent acquisition. Originally constructed as a sail training vessel for the German Navy, the Eagle was seized by the United States as a war prize following the conclusion of World War II. Now at this point in the sermon, you might be saying to yourself, that is very interesting, James. How do you know all these things? Well, thank you for noticing. I'm so glad you asked. As it turns out, as it turns out, both my father and my grandfather attended the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. And so the stories in the lore of that place have long been in the water of my family's identity. But when it comes to the crossroads, the intersection of a place, a real place, with one's identity, in this instance, there's one part of the narrative that I find to be especially interesting as it relates to my family. Turning back the clock, and remembering well his high school years, my dad recalls vividly that when he told his father that he too wanted to attend the Coast Guard Academy, just like him, that my grandfather's initial and immediate response to my dad was one of profound trepidation. 
Though you might assume that a father would only be too happy to have his son follow in his footsteps, my grandfather felt the opposite. In fact, he, my grandfather, spent a great deal of time, many conversations with my dad, imploring him to really think through and actively, actively discern this decision, making no shortage of attempts to try and talk him out of it. Now, to my grandfather's credit, there are a lot of very good reasons not to attend the academy. He knew them all too well. Out of roughly 250 cadets who enter the academy each summer, usually about 50 of the 250 never make it the full four years. Beginning with Swab Summer, a particularly grueling eight weeks, which by the way, swab is a nautical term for a mop used to clean the floors, if that paints a picture. Beginning then is when most of the weeding out tends to take place. In short, the academy, that experience is mentally, physically, and academically exhausting from the very outset. And yet, of course, of course, it is also an experience that builds character, strength, and intelligence, yielding women and men who are truly remarkable examples of self-sacrifice as well. But wonderful as end results can be, those end results only come as a consequence of a journey and when it comes to the context of my father and grandfather's relationship at this time, my grandfather wanted his son to be clear-eyed about what it was exactly that he was signing up for, that the road in the direction of the things he admired would at times be exceedingly difficult. Yes, my grandfather wanted his son to be clear-eyed about the choice he was making, testing him, even stopping him mid-conversation to make him do push-ups at the kitchen table. After all this, God tested Abraham. God said, Abraham, and Abraham answered, yes, here I am. I'm listening. Our first lesson, our lesson from Genesis today, is simultaneously one of the most important passages in the whole canon of Scripture. And yet it is also, at the same time, a lesson that more often than not confuses and confounds us. A lesson that most of the time leaves us lacking. It's one that when faced with, we often really don't know what to do with. And yet it is precisely this confluence of things that means that we have to talk about it, that we have to wrestle with it. That means that we can't avoid it. 
So let's dig in. In the wake of God's covenant with Abraham, a promise that all nations will be blessed through his family, God meets Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis to test him. God calls out to Abraham saying, Abraham, and Abraham responds, yes, here I am, I'm listening. And so clearly having his attention, God tells Abraham to take Isaac, his long hoped for son, born to him and his wife Sarah in old age, to a mountain in the land of Moriah, so that there Isaac could be sacrificed as a burnt offering. And so what does Abraham do? He gets up early in the morning. He saddles a donkey with split wood and takes two young servants and his son Isaac on a journey, setting out for the place God had directed him to go. Traveling for a bit on the third day, Abraham looks up and sees their destination off in the distance. Not far from where they need to be, Abraham hands the wood to Isaac, but tells the two servants to wait there with the donkey. He carries the flint and the knife as father and son then go off together. Now, in the midst of all that's happening, Isaac seems a bit confused. And so he asks his father for some clarification. Father, Isaac says, I don't get it. We have wood, we have flint for the burnt offering, but where is the sheep? Would seem to be a difficult question to answer, but Abraham, unwavering in his faith, unwavering in his belief in the goodness of God, unwavering in his trust that somehow God would make a way out of no way, returns a response that confirms all this. Abraham says, son, son, God will see to it that there's a sheep for the offering. God will make a way. And so they kept on walking together, the two of them, until they reached the place they were directed to go. Abraham then builds an altar and lays out the wood. He ties Isaac up, he binds him, and then prepares to do the unthinkable. But then, then, an angel of God calls out from heaven, and the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds, yes, here I am, I'm listening. And so the angel continues, don't lay a hand on that boy. Stop what you're doing. For now I know that you fear God. That is plain to see. And then suddenly in the same instant, something moves in the nearby thicket and Abraham looks up. He sees that a ram has caught his horns. And so Abraham takes the ram places it on the altar, and sacrifices it instead. 
At the end of this story, the closing scene, we are told that Abraham then looked out at the landscape in front of him and that he called that place, the Lord will provide. Yes, the Lord will provide. And so it continues to be said to this day that on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. As I said before, this lesson most of the time leaves us lacking. It's one that when faced with, we often really don't know what to do with. And that's true because it leaves us with all sorts of questions in light of our own living. It leaves us wondering, how are we then to make sense of our own experiences with trial, with testing, with hard seasons out in the wilderness? Well, as it turns out, Abraham is not the only person in Scripture who knows something about trial and testing. And so how about we look at one more story before we then turn to wrestle with both. In three out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, we hear an account of the temptation of Christ. So it goes that following his baptism in the Jordan, Jesus then goes to the Judean desert for 40 days and 40 nights to fast and pray. But as all three of those Gospels record, it is in this season in the wilderness that the devil appears to Jesus and attempts to lure him with temptation. In Matthew's version of events, the devil first tries to prod Jesus to create bread out of stones to relieve his own hunger. But that doesn't work, and so he tries again. Now on to his second attempt, the devil tells Jesus that if all he says about himself is true, that he should leap from the top of a tall pinnacle and rely on angels to break his fall. But then again, no dice. So finally, and for the third time in this story, the devil tests Jesus once more. He offers up all the kingdoms of the world. He promises them all. But in exchange, Jesus must bow down before the devil and worship him. Well, as it goes in baseball, three strikes, you're out. And that's true here too. Having rebuffed the devil a third time, Jesus sends him away, puts him to flight. Continuing the story, we know that Jesus will ultimately face more trial. He will go before Pilate. He will walk the road to Calvary, to the place of the skull, carrying an instrument of death, and he will die, lifted high on the hard wood of the cross for all the world to see. But of course, of course, that's not the end of the story, because God's story always, always chooses life. Yes, holding these two together, Abraham and Jesus, 
certainly shows us people who know something about trial and testing. But as we think about both, what are we left to lift up and hang on to as we seek meaning in the context of our own experiences? Speaking to this, speaking to both, to Abraham and Jesus, Walter Brueggemann writes that when it comes to Christ, resurrection concerns the keeping of a promise where there is no ground for it. Yes, resurrection concerns the keeping of a promise where there is no ground for it. And he continues, faith, faith is nothing other than trust in the power of the resurrection against every deathly circumstance. And when it comes to Abraham, he says that he too, that Abraham also knows beyond understanding, beyond all comprehension, that God will find a way to bring life even in this scenario of death, that that, that is the faith of Abraham. He says that just as the binding and the crucifixion both speak of trial, that the passion sayings also speak of the resurrection as God's ultimate providing. The resurrection is the miracle by which God provides new life in a situation where only death is anticipated. Yes, the resurrection is the miracle by which God provides new life in a situation where only death is anticipated. Remembering the story I began with, I think the root of my grandfather's trepidation was not just that the Coast Guard Academy would be a challenging experience for my father, challenging for anyone, but that it would be the beginning of a life of service where peril is in the job description, where the worst weather and fiercest storms greet sailors often. And while the literal storms my grandfather knew are a category of their own, it remains, it is true, that all our lives will know times of trial, times of difficulty, and that there are forces in this world that only foster and only anticipate death. But what stands in defiance, stands in victory over all of that is a God who provides a God who provides, who from Genesis to Revelation desires life for us, all of us, and that we should have it abundantly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.